people are starting to get it. You can't hide it anymore. <laughs> That's the thing. Like for a few years, you can tweak the CPI to make it look manageable. But when when food, energy, and housing are going up, even if those aren't included in CPI, people understand. Hey, my bill is 20% more than it was last year. Or like, what? Why am I spending 1% more than last month? 2% more than last month? Why is my food getting smaller but the price stays the same? It's hard to. I mean, you can pull it over on people for a little bit, but eventually, people, have, you know, they're gonna, they're gonna see. In this episode of Navigating the Noise, I am joined by Drew McMartin of High Street Capital to discuss his extensive study of historical inflationary periods, like during the decline of Rome and during the 1920s to 1930s in Germany's Weimar Republic. We compare and contrast happenings in those periods with some of the inflationary and supply chain issues we've seen in recent years. Inflation is something often talked about in the news, so if you still aren't sure what that means for you, then listen in for a better understanding. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinion of Archetype Wealth Partners or its advisors. The mention of different asset types or securities do not constitute a recommendation for our clients. If you have any questions about the content of this podcast, please contact your advisor. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining today. I've got with me Drew McMartin of High Street Capital, and we're going to kick it off by talking about um, inflation, what that means to you, what's kind of going on in the world, and, that, and how that's impacting financial markets. Uh, Drew has done extensive studies on periods back in history like Rome and Weimar Republic to kind of look at you know, how inflation uh, acted and worked in the individual's lifestyle back in those times and where uh, we kind of sit today and, and how those comparisons look. So Drew, maybe you can tell us just a, a little bit about your background. Yeah. Hi, thanks for having me, Kane. Um, so yeah, my background is really in city planning. I was in, uh, went to school as a city planner uh, and sort of focused more on the land use and real estate development allocation. So that's sort of where I got my start. And from there, started learning about uh, Ray Dalio, as I sort of mentioned. Uh, Ray has a very interesting sort of take on how the economy works. And from there, that was maybe a couple of years ago, that really sort of set me down my path that, you know, the current system about money is, is not sound. It's you know, really arguably the money is broken and, and how are there ways to sort of protect your wealth from this uh, system that is, is not functioning efficiently. So, you know, we, um, Drew, we kind of connected on, on Twitter and um, really the reason why, um, well, the, the points that I thought you could speak to today that, that are really interesting, we've covered a little bit on inflation. Um, we get a lot of questions day to day, week to week, you know, what's going to happen with this inflation? Is there inflation? What is inflation? Um, so I think you can kind of help us break that down, simplify that. But, um, you know, you, you've put out some pieces, done a lot of homework on kind of what happened in the fall of Rome, what happened in Weimar Republic. I've done some of that, not as deep on the Rome side. Um, and, and, but what happened in the depression and, and these other periods, historical periods where we've seen rampant inflation. Mm -hmm. And so maybe you could, um, you know, help us better understand what is it, what should we look for and, um, how that kind of shakes out, uh, in times yeah. where there, are, where there is uh, high levels of inflation. Yeah. So I, I first got into sort of researching inflation, um, based on Ray Dalio, like his sort of, mm -hmm. you, you, Ray Dalio, I, to attribute to sort of setting me on this path like his same his, here 
Yeah. His YouTube video, How the Economy Works, was like, I think, the very first piece of macroeconomic uh, information that I ever consumed that made sense <laughs> to me for someone who sort of was coming sort of eyes wide open into the space. And, and his video sort of, his video sort of prompted me to buy his book, sort of the big debt crisis. And that big debt crisis book has historical high inflation uh, environments in it. It doesn't cover Rome, but it covers uh, Weimar Germany. And, you know, after I watched that video, read that book, I remember seeing uh, what's fascinating about that big debt crisis is he's got uh, newspaper clippings from those times. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, the one thing that those newspaper clippings say is like most people weren't even acknowledging that they were in high inflationary environments while it's happening. Uh, well, the beauty, just to step in right here, the beauty of that book, and I know it's four or 500 pages, it's thick, it's, it's dense, but number one, it is just extremely simple. It's, like, you know, it's, it's easy. It's an easy to read. And you know, the, the newspaper clippings, you don't even have to read them, but they're on the, they're on the columns and they tell you yeah. what's going on. Like it, it almost takes you through the um, two to four year period, uh, sort of the lead up to high inflation. And, and that's sort of the key thing to me right now is the lead up because the parallels between sort of you know, fall of Rome uh, from a money debasement and, and Weimar Germany, a lot of those parallels are, are happening today. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, it's interesting, like in, in Weimar Germany and, and in Rome, they, they didn't really acknowledge that the money printing was causing the inflation. <laughs> uh, and I was, I remember reading that being so surprised. I was like, how, you know, how could they not see it? Like, but it's easy for us to look back, you know, t you know 80 years, hundred years ago and say like, you know, how did you not see this? But you know, we're, we're repeating the same mistakes. And one of the parallels is once you start getting down, like you can start debasing your currency money printing at the beginning. And it, it's, it's, it, it actually is a benefit in the short term. Uh, and it solves problems today, but it generally makes the problems in the future worse because you're, you're almost pulling demand from the future for the present. So you're solving today's problems and you're making today's issues almost go away. But the problem is within 12 months, those issues that you solve today are now worse. <laughs> so, you know, you've printed money, which is, it's efficient for um, increasing sort of demand and allocation in the short term, but you're inefficiently allocating more money. Like for every dollar you print, some of that is not gonna get allocated to an investment that produces more dollars. So there's this um, increase in inefficiency in the market and there's more, I would say, bad debt in the market with the more money that's printed. So the solution to that is to either, you know, increase taxes, increase taxes, increase production, or print more money. <laughs> so, you and so, and that's something right quick. Um, in Dahlia's work, it's phenomenal. Big debt crisis. So he looked back two to five thousand years. I don't remember the exact window, but something like that. And I think it was two or three hundred civilization cases, mm -hmm. rise and decline, and some of that led into the New World Order. His his other book, but um, the beauty of it, the second part was he simplified it first, and the second part he took that and made an average. The yeah. archetype and so you could see easily in his mind and his team's mind when you trended well above and when you trended well below and germany well above we're kind of in that region where it seems like we're well above um it, but he laid out the steps and the guidelines and he says in the in the front i think that he did it so that central bankers of the future would have a book to go pull off the shelf 
and say, oh, this is what I do here because they don't have that and B, they don't do that. Um, and they tend to make, you know, we're human. We tend to make bad decisions. And to your point, um, central bankers do take the easy route first, which is print. And then, yeah. and it helps, but the longer you keep doing step. it. Yeah. When, you, when you're faced with the two, I mean, the, really the two choices are, do we print and, and sort of try to get out of this issue through printing or do we sort of step back and let the market sort of naturally correct itself, which, you know, I'm not saying that I'm, I'm, I'm not saying either is a good situation, to be honest, they've sort of backed themselves into a corner mm-hmm. and the more printing that you've done, you, you make, um, I don't want to call it the day of reckoning, but the day where you have to deal with all of the money you're printing, you're, you're actually making that day worse. <laughs> so for every dollar you printed, the person who has to come along and, and fix that or, or let that unwind from the system, it's going to be even harder the next day. So, um, like in Weimar Germany, they called it like inflation is like a drug. So, <laughs> you know, it solves the problem at the beginning, but it's, it's fatal in the end. Um, and, and Ray Dalio cautioned about that in, in his work and his writing. Mm-hmm. He said like the, the solution where the sort of corrections occur is to overprint and to try to fix the problem through printing. And again, I, I don't envy the job of the central banks. I don't, I don't think they have an easy job <laughs> by any sense. And I've written about this saying they're picking the lesser of two evils. Like there's, there's no, there's no good solution here. <laughs> but but like he points out, at some point, someone has to come along and they have to take the medicine. They have to take the pain because that's the only way. Um, and maybe, you know, you hear noise about the Great Reset coming out of 2020 and whatever. And maybe it maybe that's going to happen. But there has to be some sort of, uh, and this kind of where Bitcoin fits in, logical reason to step back to a sound money. Yeah. And so when they, when they have to sort of face either through higher taxes or, or stop printing the money that historically every society has faced that where they that sort of, okay, we, we've got to either raise interest rates <laughs> to slow this down or, or money has to matter again. Like the more you print, the, the less sound your money is. So you're, you're getting further and further away from a sound money, which then just causes you to print more. Um, so you're, you're getting further and further away of what you need to do. And it's hard for someone to come along and say, what we're doing is unsustainable and we need to solve this problem today, because if we try to solve this in two years, this problem is going to be way worse. But in, in Weimar, Germany and Rome, to a lesser extent, I don't have the data to definitively say that that happened at a specific period. Certainly in Weimar, there comes a time when the money printing actually makes the issues worse than if you were to just let the system sort of unwind and increase taxes. <laughs> and one point I make there, I just read it uh, recently in the sovereign individual. Um, you know, we, we've got this picture in our mind that inflation happens and it's just this nasty crash and the civilization ends. Um, and that book made the great point that that's not really how it happens. Um, you have this inflation and the dominance in the global reach, specifically, they were talking about Rome, just you kind of lose control of your global footprint. Mm-hmm. And so people within that society tend to believe, hey, we're still the best. We're still number one. But the rest of the world starts to treat you not that way. And yeah. so your currency can still maintain and, and your ways of living, though, the standards drop drastically. Mm-hmm. They still function and people still, you know, there's still political leaders and still banks and still all that stuff. It just, the, the lifestyle drastically drops. Would, would you say that's fair or, or? Yeah, absolutely. People are starting to get it. I, yeah. 
you can't hide it anymore. <laughs> That's the thing. Like for a few years, you can tweak the CPI to make it look, you know, manageable. But when, when food, energy, and housing are going up, even if those aren't included in CPI, people understand, hey, my bill is 20% more than it was last year. Or like, what? why am I spending 1% more than last month, 2% more than last month? Why, why is my food getting smaller, but the price stays the same? You know, it's hard to, I mean, you can, you can pull it over on people for a little bit, but eventually people, have, you know, they're going to, they're going to see like shrinkflation is a big thing that you see now, like the big brands, they're trying not to change their price. So they're just sort of making smaller products and selling it for the same price and, <laughs> and then hoping no one will notice, but you know, eventually that catches up. Like you can only make a product so small so someone figures out that something's, something's changing. So people, people understand, I think what people don't understand right now is that uh, the inflation is tied to the money printing. Like I, like where we are, like I hear a lot of people say like, Oh, you know, real estate's up 30% sort of in, in Ontario, Canada, you know, it's up 30%. Well, so is the money supply. So you subtract the new money by it. Like, you know, it's not really up. You're, you're not more wealthy. You just have more dollars. <laughs> yeah. And that, that's something that Greg Foss talks a lot about that, that, you know, the value of your house, your Bitcoin, all these other things that are denominated in dollars, they're not really up that much, so to speak. It's that the dollars and the fiat currency that they're quoted in is down that that much. Yeah. Lauren, Lauren Slappard also sort of speaks about this. Um, call it like, you know, historically it's called like a crack up boom where everyone sort of thinks they're getting rich <laughs> because they have more dollars and all their assets are going up. And that they're sort of in a short term spurs more consumption like for instance cars like you you see used cars going up and you could buy a used car now or you could buy a brand new car drive it for a bit and sell it back for a couple of years for more than it was worth <laughs> when you bought it so people are seeing that those are going up so that kind of spurs people to make purchases on on hard assets or, or assets that are difficult to reproduce because they're like well it's going to be worth more so there's this sort of uh i guess surge of demand but that, that's not a sustainable thing and you can't you can't keep that sort of demand surge going. So, you know, people, people see that prices are going up, but they don't see like no one, nobody measures their net worth or their, their wealth minus the money supply for that year. <laughs> it's just like, you know, the common people, most people don't do that. So when you, when you remove sort of, okay, my assets are up 30%, real estate's up 30%. They've increased the balance sheet by 40%. <laughs> Am I further ahead? No, you're you at at best you're you're managing or just managing to maintain your wealth and the people who don't have the assets they're the ones that are getting further and further left behind so you know nowadays you're seeing a lot of like social unrest and a lot of that's attributed to the people who have assets like money printing is very beneficial to anyone who owns assets they benefit a lot the, the people who are the most inversely in fact impacted are people who don't have assets you know if my house has gone up 30%, the money supply is up 30%. If I'm trying to save in dollars for a house, I'm, my house is getting harder and harder to buy. <laughs> and the concept of saving in cash to buy a house used to be sort of standard, right? Like you save up, then you buy the house. Nowadays, if you're saving in cash to buy a house, like you're, you're not only are you spinning your wheels, you're spinning your wheels as <laughs> the goal is getting further away, which. And that's, that's one thing that I don't, I don't think people have understood for the last 20, 30 years, but in the last two to five years, p 
people's eyes have really become on or started to focus on that. They're like, wait a second, I am saving for specific goals, but those goals, the price of them keep going up. Mm-hmm. And if I increase my savings, it doesn't seem to, to help me out any doesn't seem to catch up. So, you know, one of the things we talk about is um, keeping cash on hand. Well, we've kind of shifted a little bit. You should have cash, right? Because you never know. We, we, we know one thing's for sure. Life comes at you and things happen and you need cash and, and it varies and you never know when that is. But probably not much more than you might spend in, in this environment. Um, not much more than you might spend in the next six months. I was going to say six months, like, you know, a rainy day fund, like um, COVID and sort of the shutdown of the world taught everyone that you, you do need. <laughs> to yeah, have- you've got to have a backstop. And, and if that money, you know, if that money erodes a hundred percent or a thousand percent in six months, we've got bigger issues. Um, but well, yeah. And that would be offset if, you know, if, if you have your six months sort of burn, I would call it in terms of cash. Mm-hmm if that money erodes, that would be offset by sort of your allocation. I would, I, I call it to hard assets like real estate, gold, silver. And I think the best of them all is, is Bitcoin. And that's the flip side. And, and we'll get into Bitcoin um, too in this, because that's sort of what a lot of these podcasts that I do are about. Um, yeah. But the flip side and, and the other side of the coin that you, that you mentioned a few minutes ago, um, the underprivileged or, you know, people that don't have the financial means or, or however you want to uh, spend that, um, they don't have the assets, which that creates the greatest problem. So, you know, we need cash for the things that we know that are coming and the unexpected things, but we need anything that's not in that little bucket needs to be in some form of asset, whether, as you mentioned, real estate, gold, Bitcoin, Ethereum, silver, stocks, internet, you know, it's got to be in something. Um, for the last year, you could put it in used cars, which is odd because those uh, traditionally have been thought of as liabilities and not assets. In my opinion, they still are, right? Like mm-hmm. the fact that a used car is worth more, that that is sort of another reason why people are sort of waking up. Like <laughs> I used to say like, you know, when beef was up sort of 20, 30% year over year, it's like, there isn't, there isn't like a booming beef industry or eggs are up. Like, you know, eggs haven't suddenly become this amazing investment that's <laughs> netting you sort of 30% a year. It's, it's that your money is, is eroding in value. And these are just, all of these other assets or other commodities, even meat, eggs, these are just ways to measure the erosion of your money relative to- of that underlying unit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So- Yeah, and so you've got one unit uh, dollars, fiat, whatever, um, you know, whatever country you may be in your, your local dollar, um, that are going down because all the other asset prices are going up. And then you've got assets like Bitcoin and gold and things of that nature that are going up are, and yes, there's volatile periods. Uh, but in general over, if we stretch out, zoom out and look at the last 12 years, they are going up. Oh, they're, in, they're increasing. Not only are they sort of maintaining, like I, I would say stocks and you know, to extend real estate, like they're maintaining their purchasing power. Bitcoin has this sort of network effect where not only is it maintaining its purchasing power, but if you, if you look at sort of anything priced in Bitcoin <laughs> over the last five years, uh, the amount of Bitcoin required for those purchases is, is decreased. Not it's, you know, real estate, I would say stocks are sort of maintaining this sort of status quo where you're not getting further behind based on sort of new supply, but you know, Bitcoin is increasing. The amount of Bitcoin you need to purchase those items is going down. And, that, and that's really by design for Bitcoin. I mean, because mm-hmm. 
they've got a Bitcoin has a very fixed supply. It's less than sort of 2% a year now based on stock to flow. And these assets, you know, these assets are increasing. So there are, there are more of these assets. So that's, you know, by design that this is happening. And then there's also the network effect for Bitcoins. So not only is it sort of maintaining its purchasing power, but more people are entering the space. And then that, that alone also increases the value. Um, like when your purchasing power decreases, and especially on the global scale, like when your currency, like countries are trying to ditch the US dollar like crazy mm -hmm. right now. Um, and trying to sort of de-dollarize themselves, China, Russia among them. <laughs> you know, you're starting to see El Salvador sort of pull away from a dollar standard just because those those are obviously very different reasons, those countries, but they they um, they don't have any control over the printing of it. So, you know, if that money is decreasing in value, that money on the global scale relative to other things is not going to get as many goods as it once was. So, uh, you know, cost to import goods are going to go up um, and, and people will start to realize that that their lifestyle, I think people are already almost starting to see that now. Um, you know, it's, you have to have a, you have to make a lot more money to have as much meat in your diet as you did 12 months ago, 24 mm -hmm. months ago. Uh, and these are sort of small things now. So that, that was one thing I was going to ask a little bit earlier. You talked about the things that from your research, the signs, the indicators, the warnings, the red flags that you saw in yeah. Rome, you also saw in Weimar Republic, um, World War One, Two, and then you're kind of seeing some of those now. Um, what so the, specifically? Yeah. So there are there are two things specifically, like two common threads that I would actually sort of three. <laughs> uh, so one is the debasement and the rate of decay of the value of the purchasing power of the currency. Um, they're different across all three periods. Like if you take Rome or Weimar or even now, the, the speed at which they're decaying or the speed. And that's the underlying asset being used, the unit of account for that. Yeah. So, yeah. so different time frames for each one, but the charts look the same. So, mm -hmm. you know, the rates, if you standardize them over like a chart, look very similar in terms of when the bottom really drops out of the value. Like generally it's, it's like a very slow line, maybe a 10 degree line. Then it goes into 45 and then it's like this 45 degree line for a while. And then it, Choose up to like an eighty. So that's that's interesting because, uh, so I'm I have a little bit of a natural God-given talent uh, from an art standpoint. Uh, do portrait pencil drawing. So uh, I gravitated in the equity markets to technical analysis. Um, love charts, love price. I, they tell you everything before the news headlines. Mm -hmm. But I've always said, and I've never exactly figured it out. I'm just not that smart. But I just look at charts and I use that visual forty-five degree line across the history of it as my mechanism of that should be normal are we well above well below are we a little bit above it, because it helps me define risk so it's interesting to hear you lay it out that way yeah I, i'm personally like a visual learner too and you know there's cases to be made that technical analysis in the short term you know is arguably i've heard it being called sort of like the Mm -hmm. uh, if you use it wrong it's voodoo yeah. yeah voodoo or like a horoscope of uh, <laughs> yeah uh, but but over a very long period of time like the data it's very hard for the data to lie on like very long-term trends five to ten years or longer like it's it's really hard for that not to show up as like a trend line on something um so i, I find there's huge value in sort of comparing those because you can you can standardize different time frames different um currencies different debasements through like a common chart, 
Um, mm -hmm. and, and things are sort of starting to ski slope, which is not a technical term, but that's just something I <laughs> reference. Yeah, it's that point where you know at some point gravity kicks in. Yeah, and that's so we're seeing that. The main thing across all sort of high inflationary periods is um, monetizing the debt. So um, in every single period, you can print money, but if you have a surplus of exports or a surplus of capital, you can print that and, and you generally get away with that. Like, uh, like if you look at Japan, <laughs> their debt to printing, I think is 200. Well, it's kind of like, you know, coming out of World War II and, and World War I, where the U.S. was basically the sweatshop for the world. Yeah, well, they were producing goods in the U.S. So yeah, so know, they had that capacity of exports to print against. Well, and then the '70s, when sort of interest rates went up to twenty percent, that you know that was a crazy time. But they were able to absorb sort of that stagflation because they were uh, net exporters. Yep. <laughs> um, nowadays, uh, m most of that printing is now going to kind of just make up the debt <laughs> and the deficits of like the balance or the budget. And that that happened in Weimar. That I don't know if it specifically happened in in Rome, but that that the problem with debt monetization, where you're starting to print money to make up a difference, that gets you down a really slippery slope that it's very difficult to recover from. You either need you need like a real spur of increased uh, efficiencies in your production to sort of make up that difference, which it's easier to print. So you know you make up the difference, and then you know a couple of years later. You know, now you've got a bit bigger of a debt problem. So you print a bit more to make up the difference. And you're basically just print, you're, you're creating this unsustainable system where you're just sort of uh, printing to feed your own issues. And, and the U.S. is in that now, like, you know, foreign countries aren't really buying <laughs> the debt that the U.S. is sending. So the, you know, short-term solution, okay, we'll buy our own debt, like that'll solve it. But that just makes your debt even less valuable in the future, which you then will have to buy more. Um, and is that similar in ancient Roman times when they started clipping the coins, I, having less gold? The debasement, 100%. Um, I don't know what their balance sheets were like in Rome. I, I haven't studied to that extent. But in terms of like the coin clipping and the content of silver, uh, the dolaris and, and the silver currency is eerily similar. Now, that was across a 400 period time. The chart is eerily similar to the money supply in Germany and eerily similar to like the Fed balance sheet of the last 20 years. <laughs> and how are you looking at money supply today? Um, so what today, are you, what like, are you following? So there are two sort of metrics. Like for me, it's like the M2 money supply I find is a pretty good gauge. And then also the Fed balance sheet is the other one. Um, the Fed balance sheet, I would say is probably a greater indicator just because that shows you sort of everything that's on it shows you the purchase, sell, and holding of all assets, which now they, they've, yeah, with with 2020, and, and now we're essentially doing swaps with other countries. When I And I got really into the space in 2019, uh, like in the fall, where sort of that was at the time when the Fed was uh, letting the balance sheet unwind. I think they were at sort of four and a half trillion in terms of total budget, and they wanted to get down. Uh, Powell was quoted, I think, in 2018, saying you want to get down to 2.5 to 3 trillion uh, mm -hmm. in terms of total budget. So they they were unwinding the balance sheet, like they were not renewing purchases that were coming up. So they were they were no longer purchasing, and they were raising interest rates. But they and you know traditional interest rate is four and a half percent. I think they made it to 2.25 before they uh, immediately stopped raising rates and started lowering rates again. Like if you look 
if you look at any of these uh, interest rate charts of the U.S. or the Fed balance sheet uh, in 2018, 2019, uh, there's like a very small tick down and then it like immediately shoots back up. So, so that's interesting because there was a paper that the Fed, New York Fed, released in 2020, February, actually. So they gave everybody a heads up. They released a paper and said, uh, I forgot the name of it, but um, it was something to the effect of how the Fed managed the yield curve throughout the Great Depression. And so if you believe in Dalio, which he's been phenomenally more right than anybody else that's openly gave their opinion, and he's, gave, he's given all his resources over the last five, six years, um, he says, and this was a couple of years ago, we're in basically 1937. And when you look back of it, they mirror very well. Lynn Alden's done a lot of work, kind of recreating a lot of his work as well. And she's kind of basically saying the same thing. But so if you look at that paper, they walk through how the Fed managed the yield curve. And they basically set rates a floor around 75 bips, half a percent, and then a ceiling two and a quarter to 250. And if you look at what went Maybe on in 2020 to now, it's that's they just it'll massively shoot up towards two or a little higher, and then it'll f- drop like a rock to one a little bit lower. Well, and to Ray Dalio's point, like after 1937, when the rates hit zero, like they hit zero for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he's always cautioned of like geopolitical issues in these periods of time. You know, 37 is pretty close to the uh, start of World War II, um, mm-hmm. just because it's it's a time when sort of the, the inherent superpower has uh, not in a position to like exude force to the sort of outside country. In that war today, you could easily make a case it's just cyber. It's been there for a decade. I mean, probably like traditional wars might not not even happen in the future. There's just mm-hmm. so much information on the digital. And then, sorry, not to switch two more points, but the other thing, common thread across all inflations was like over-speculation in uh, the markets. And that was generally caused by the first two things, like debasement and the money printing. People knew that their money was not secure. They knew the money was broken. I don't think people would come around and say, and say like, hey, my money's broken. But they knew that they couldn't save in the native currency without getting into investments. So like in, in uh, uh, Weimar Germany, there was high speculation and people's assets- It was FX first and then- Yeah, there, like there's quotes, um, When Money Dies is a great book about yeah. sort of that. And there's quotes of like, you know, people in Germany saying, you know, that, the time to focus on production is gone. And most people are just sort of speculating to try to make their dollars into more dollars. Like, it, you know, they didn't have dollars and they had paper marks, but it's the same thing. It, it, and it feels like kind of, you know, we filled, filled, filled it a lot of calls in 2020 uh, with everybody sitting at home, no sports, no gambling, you yeah, know, whatever. And they just kind of gravitated to the markets felt yeah, a lot yeah. like those accounts. Yeah, the rise of the day trader, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, you know, to, to an extent, some of that's sort of gone down, but lots of people are realizing that they can't save in dollars today, which is eerily similar to before. Like, I would reference sort of 1919 in Weimar, Germany, like mm-hmm. years before the high inflation, but you're seeing similar parallels to then where people sort of recognize that their dollars are not safe. They, like you see it, um, like the GameStop, um, the silver squeeze, then you're seeing the rise in the NFT markets, Dogecoin, like literally currencies that are from dogs. <laughs> yeah. 
Shibu. Well, the good point there is literally a currency where the founder said it was created as a joke. Well, there was no no purpose. Well, no one seems to care that, that that was said or that there is that. People just see that there is the ability to make money quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just sort of gets away from production. Like no, no one's really focused on producing physical things or physical services that add value. Like it's, it's a lot of speculation. And-, and, and to that point, if you look at productivity for the last 50 years, it's a decline. There is no rise in productivity. It, arguably, yeah, de- decline. I mean, you could maybe say it's been holding level for the last few years but the gdp has been decreasing every year for 20 years and that then you print more money to try to get the same gdp so the amount of money that you're printing for point of gdp growth is like again a ski slope like you're requiring more and more money to almost maintain so nowadays you're requiring more and more money almost to maintain a status quo of your gdp correct And, and that's when that's when the inflation becomes higher because you are dependent on the printing to maintain your current level of production. If you've looked at the last year, like they had a huge, like the, the balance sheet, like basically doubled in 18 months, 12 months. Now you're seeing this steady slope. Like they haven't slowed down the printing for the last 12 months and actually they've increased it. And you're seeing discussions now like taper talk and the markets, even the seconds people mention taper, <laughs> uh, the markets seem to get into this like, tizzy, which to me says like, so the markets not only, you know, in 20, 2018, 2019, the markets got upset when the balance sheet were reduced. I think they probably would have been okay if the balance sheet stayed the same. Now the markets are getting upset if the uh, balance sheets aren't increasing exponentially. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, there's a huge difference between those two. And it shows that you're sort of in the next stage of higher inflation to me. And that speaks to the when money dies, when it becomes, you start to see those addictive drug-like habits. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're starting to see those now. It's, I would say it's the early stages of that. But if you're projecting forward, if you say like, okay, in 2018, 2019, like they couldn't, they couldn't decrease the balance sheet. Now they can't, they can't slow the increase. Like there's a big difference between those two things. And you, how do you, how do you, project in three years, five years, where did this go? Like Stan Drunkenmiller has openly said that the U S will lose its dollar reserve currency, like within nine years. Like that's, that's pretty, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's pretty quick. So. And you're know, seeing the IMF, I think they issued 685 billion or something. Yeah. SDR. Two or three weeks ago. Yeah. SDR. So you're seeing the IMF because we moved from financial markets where mutual funds became big then commercial banks. And then, you know, stock market and then the hedge funds and then investment banks. And then in 2008, central banks. So there's like no bigger fish to come well, gobble and, up the, the Jim, problem. Yeah. And Jim Rickards like hypothesized this maybe four years ago. Yeah. Uh, like he, he had as an interesting view of saying, you know, uh, in uh, maybe it was 2000, 2001, like the dot com, like Wall Street bailed out one company. 2008, yeah. like the government bailed out Wall Street, who's going to bail out yeah. the governments? And but, you know, I mean, he's just a conspiracy theorist, though. Well, <laughs> no, I mean, I'm, I'm, a jo- I'm joking. Most people who speak some truth sound pretty crazy, I would yeah. say. Yeah, yeah, that, <laughs> yeah. That was just tongue in cheek. It's interesting because now you're seeing SDRs used to sort of spur growth. And 
coins. Like what, what is an SDR if not just a basket of six or seven fiat currencies? It's just like, I, I was really shocked by that one. And I know the IMF, um, you know, it's the central bank to, to the central banks. Um, yeah. what is it? The bank of international settlements, BIS, um, those guys make the world go round. but I was, I was shocked to read that headline. Well, and I, arguably that won't be the last time you read that, right? Like if the countries start defaulting or, you know, it's not gonna be the US at the beginning of the other <laughs> other countries well before that, but if countries have trouble paying their debts, now all of a sudden they're issuing SDRs to make up their debts. It's just like another level of unsound money entering the system. And, you know, can that keep the system going for a few years? Maybe, you know, could it keep it going for five, 10 years? Probably. <laughs> but what happens to the IMF in 10 years when they do that? Like who's gonna bail out the IMF? So are they gonna create like a, you know, oh, a universal body to bail out the IMF with some new made up currency, probably. But I think before that happens, people are going to start switching to harder assets to protect their wealth. And that's sort of why I sort of entered the space and, and started speaking about this because I sort of realized this is an unsustainable path that we're heading on and that people are going to lose significant amounts of their wealth if they just stay and, and do nothing. So, and we went dark and dreary there, um, but it's good to talk about the truth and reality of what's out there and be aware of it. Um, I think particularly here in the U.S., at least in my adult life, um, it feels like more often than not, people stick their head in the sand. So it's good to be aware, but then not get stuck in all that negativity because the world does move forward. So in those historical accounts that you've looked at and studied, is that kind of the path forward as as things get bad, inflation happens, and then eventually enough people realize they have to change the way that they allocate or invest to true assets? Yeah. What's um, the solution? So the solution really just, like in Weimar, Germany, there's a story of a lady who, uh, this was sort of pre-high inflation. She went to the bank and she had like um, German bonds or maybe they were Austrian bonds uh, because that's all she knew and that was what was safe. And the, there's a story of the bank teller saying like, you need to switch, switch this to switch francs. Like you're going to lose your value. She's like, no, I'll stay. I'll stay in this. And there's a story that she came back a few years later and the value of her bonds had decreased by 75%. Like three quarters of her wealth was gone. And she was still asking the teller, like, what should I do? <laughs> and the teller was you know, saying like, you need to switch to switch francs. Like I, I told you this two years ago. Um, so it's hard for sort of someone who maybe doesn't study macroeconomics or study historical macroeconomics, which is, I would say, almost everybody on a day-to-day -day basis to sort of understand or to, to have the confidence to switch into other things because um, saving in, in dollars and bonds are what most people know as the safe thing to do. But in high inflationary environments, it becomes very dangerous to save in those or, or those actually become the riskier assets as the value of the dollar decreases. Um, well, I mean, and that's, it tells you how many people didn't take e econ or fell asleep, but isn't that macro econ 101, so, uh, well, of inflation, fine substitute. Taking a macroeconomics <laughs> class ever for the record. So uh, you, you, you caught up with your online research. Just uh, as a disclaimer for your listeners. Yeah. But, um, what happens in those situations is usually there's like two things. One, the government will realize that their currency at some point has no value and they will switch to a new currency. So in, in Germany, there was a um, paper mark switched to the Renton mark. And what I found really interesting about that was the Renton mark was also backed by nothing. Yeah. Um, but they just said like, okay, we're going to try a new currency. And then this time we're going to try to keep the supply 
and people are like, okay. <laughs> Didn't they switch four times? Or am Before I... they found like something that was backed by gold, I think it was, yeah, three or three or four different currencies yeah. between 1934 and 1943, I think, or something. Yeah, they yeah. basically, basically kept... up to Bretton Woods, 44. Yeah, they just basically switched kept and then eventually they went on the gold standard at that point so you know it's not it's not instantaneous the solution but eventually the solution is you need to get back to sound money that's the only way that you can fix these problems so then is the analogy of the frog in boiling water basically what you tend yeah. to see historic from the historical accounts you you hit the nail right on the head there i i've used that term a bunch of times like it's people don't realize that their world is changing or they, they understand it's changing, but it's at a, such a non, uh, I guess, linear scale or exponential scale at the beginning that they don't, they don't seem to worry about it. Like, okay, yes, it's changing. Okay. But, and no one other, other people realize it's changing, but no one projects where it's going. And by the time it gets to like a boiling point, uh, it's almost too late at that point. Like people are not going to want your dollars or your dollars are not going to get things. And, uh, like the definition of hyperinflation is an increase in inflation of, I think it's 50% per month <laughs> over wow. two months. So, and that in, in Weimar, you saw that in days and weeks. I mean, you just recently saw it in Argentina, Venezuela. Well, and that's the thing, like it, it always starts slowly and then increases, but you know, once, once you get down that hill, uh, it, it can really increase. And then there's just a point where it's just like, okay, like this money doesn't have any value, like <laughs> at some mm -hmm. point. And, and those times come. So what happens is people will eventually uh, move to harder assets. It's, it's hard to insulate yourself when the uh, softer assets are increasing their rates. Like, and if you know that they can't decrease the increase of the rates, you, you have to, eventually people will just migrate to sort of harder forms of money. In uh, Weimar, people to be honest, like resorted to bartering uh, mm -hmm. because it was, some people had gold, some people had silver, like the value of gold, like in relative to a, a German paper mark was an exponential increase. Like <laughs> went from like a loaf of bread in Germany, I think within one year went from 200 uh, paper marks to 200 million, I think it was. Uh, yeah. Cause you've got that chart where, you know, it's just kind of steadily going along, going along, kind of spikes up. And then all of a sudden it's just straight vertical. So, yeah, and that's the thing. So, I would, you know, that's the 10% to 45%. And the 45% is interesting because it's like this consistent time where people are like, okay, yeah, it's increasing, but it's a consistent rate. We could pull back if we need to. And then there's always these events that happen. <laughs> like now it's COVID. So COVID sort of has kind of jumped in. And I think COVID is very similar to the reparations that Germany had to face, where it's like, these are unforeseen expenses that we didn't uh, plan for in society. And, and that just make a quick point that um, is a good is one thing regarding the frog being the frog and then boiling water is um, the economic system. It seems like and Jeff Snyder, um, I think is Alameda capital. He's got a good podcast on the Euro Euro dollar um, university. Uh, he talks about that. And, and I remember early on 2010, 15 being frustrated because Bloomberg and Wall Street analysts would be like, Walmart missed sales because it rained more in this quarter than last. And the weather was bad or the weather was good. And that's why sales were up and down. And so he calls it out and he says, that's a problem. And we see that a lot. And you see this when you're the frog in there, you listen to that mm -hmm. and, and you think that makes sense. It makes zero sense. And so he said, you know, when you're looking at all these balance sheets and, and Fed actions and all this activity, 
it all started well before COVID. COVID was just the news headline that you and I and all the frogs kind of were like, oh, wait, the world changed. Yeah, and it's kind of like a benchmark period where you can kind of put it there. But like, you know, the repo markets, banks weren't lending to each other in 2019, like the fall of 2019. Yeah, yeah. The whole fourth quarter of 18, there was issues. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's not to say that COVID was the cause of all this. Like some people say COVID was the the prick that like did the bubble. Right, and that was just the thing that the frog realized, wait, this water's hot. Most people notice it at that point or the changes like in the feds balance sheet that's where it's went from the 45 percent to like the 80 percent in terms of like a, a rate of decay i call it that's where the the chart really starts to steepen so i would say everything up until there everyone would make you know me personally would be under the assumption that you know it's a steady increase we can we're talking about decreasing we're going to normalize rates but the talk and what happened in real life were very different things so uh people sort of woke up sort of after COVID and realize, okay, the balance sheet is now doubled and they can't slow it down. Like this, this is very different than what it was before. And the same thing happened in Rome over that scale was over 400 years, but you know, they started with 95% and for like 200 years, it went from 90 to 80%. And then it sort of quickly went on this 45 degree to like 40%. And then from 40 to 5% was like, boom, like it was within a matter of decades in Rome, which in our terms is like a matter of years <laughs> mm-hmm. and then from there rome uh left silver altogether their coins were like minted in bronze after that which just sort of shows that they're sort of completely out of the <laughs> trying to have a, a hard currency game so and that that's to that point where you can still be a dominant civilization and still have functioning society and economic system but you just don't you're not the the civilization because you kind of lost credibility with no monetary power yeah if you look at the last 600 years like any country that had uh the dominant reserve currency those countries are all still standing (laughs) it's not like those countries fell into the ocean um yeah exactly germany or not germany um england like the netherlands (laughs) Mm -hmm. all of the countries are still there they just may have a different role in the future but and I, i don't think this is going to get to a point where um that the situation is very different. Like in Weimar Germany, people didn't have sort of a readily available opt-out currency that they could jump to. Um, they could go to the banks and try to get Swiss francs. But once once the inflation started to go, like that, you know, that was very hard to get your hands on sort of harder assets of currency. You know, nowadays with the emergence of, you know, the Bitcoin market, like there's this parallel system that is already running <laughs> and it's been running, you know, since just after 2008, which is t- interesting timing, I would say, um, but it's already running. So, you know, does this higher inflation environment spur a transition to a harder asset quicker? Maybe like, you know, the lightning network, you can have payments, you know, there's countries that El Salvador just made Bitcoin legal tender. So yeah, McDonald's is, you can get McDonald's. You can buy a Big Mac with a Bitcoin. I think they're incentivizing that actually. You get a oh, it's law. It's law. So I saw that McDonald's had to offer it day one, Starbucks and... Um, so you, have, you have to accept it. You don't, if someone wants to pay in Bitcoin, they have to accept it, but yeah, yeah. you can still pay in US dollars down there. Right, yep. So that, to me, that's interesting um, because Elise Keeling is who's pretty heavily into um, Bitcoin. She, she tweeted something the other day saying like within three to four years, the majority of people will access Bitcoin through earnings, uh, right. which to me was very eye-opening. Like we're, by 2025, she's saying like four years is not a very long time, but 
you know, if you well to to match that, CNBC did a study and I posted it. Um, twenty six percent of investors that came into the market after twenty nineteen held crypto. Yeah, and, most are selling, right? Yeah, and so you've got strike running around. Uh, they've got athletes and other people, and they're setting up the rails where you can take payment in Bitcoin from your from your corporate employer. I, I wrote an article um, for Bitcoin Magazine about athletes and getting into to Bitcoin space, and a lot of athletes are taking their signing bonuses or or like their salaries in Bitcoin, especially in the NFL because they're not in that league for very long, just with how physical it is. And that's a good segue because we talk about the frog in boiling water. Well, and and we know that the earth still spins. It's up and to the right for humans. There are bumps along the way. So how do you, you know, solve this inflation? First off, you have to be able to answer the question, what is inflation? Am I seeing it? And then what's the solve? Which it's don't be afraid to introduce new asset classes because you need some form. So if you've, if, we really live in a world that's either dollars or not dollars, meaning you either hold dollars to do what you need to do, or you don't hold them as your investment, whatever that may be. Um, so if you have, you know, you traditionally had equities, fixed income, real estate, cash. Now we've got this new digital asset class. So there's a fifth way to diversify. And if you put all your eggs in any of those baskets, the odds of you being the frog that gets boiled is pretty high. But if you have it spread out, is that a way that for, through yeah, your study? Your allocation, like certainly to Bitcoin should not be 0%. Like I don't understand the logic in that. Like once, you know, if you lay out sort of what we just talked about for the last, you know, 40, 45 minutes, 50 minutes, to me, it's okay. This is an unsustainable system. How do you protect? The question becomes, once you sort of acknowledge that inflation is happening, Maybe the metrics that they use to measure inflation are not correct <laughs> because they don't include energy, food. Uh, they don't include the stuff that you use every single day that you breathe. Every day. Like you can't, you can't live in an iPod. <laughs> right. You, you can't eat an iPod. So if your electronics are going down, that's great. But if your energy, housing, <laughs> and food costs are all going up, like you're generally going to be inversely affected by that by negative. And now you're seeing they're starting to want to remove commodities. Yeah. CPI. It's like... Basically, anytime something isn't good for inflation talks, they remove it. Like, I think at one point housing was in, in CPI. I'm... Yeah, I mean, anytime that some component of CPI gets to a rate that can't make that number give or take two. Yeah, they, they just pull it out. They take it out. So it, to me, CPI is not a measuring device. Like a measuring device tells you uh, accurately <laughs> what's going on um, to to change your measuring device every time data is telling you something that you don't want to hear, believe, right? Believe is not an accurate measuring tool. So, um, you know, if you look at hard assets, if, if you like measure one dollar in Bitcoin, like Bitcoin is a, if you look at that and you want to think inflation is real, like look at one dollar as a purchasing power in Bitcoin over ten years, like it's, it's a ski slope completely down, down into the right. <laughs> yeah, I did that. Um, I don't know a year or two ago. And I think I did it annually. Mm -hmm. Bitcoin's price, and it's just up, 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 up. And underneath, I was like, "What does that tell you about the unit that it's being measured in?" And that's the thing. And that, you know, is that the true indication of inflation rates? Like, if it is, like, inflation is really, really high. Um, you know, arguably that's maybe not the most accurate measurement, but it is a pretty accurate tool. Like, it's very different from CPI in terms of what you're measuring. So. 
Um, to say that like your allocation is zero into these assets is the wrong answer. It's, it's <laughs> because if these become right and the probability of them becoming right, I think increases as every year goes on. Like if you, if you look at Bitcoin last year, um, this time, or maybe, you know, a year and a half ago, no companies had Bitcoin on their balance sheet. <laughs> no countries had Bitcoin as legal tender. If you look at it now, the, not only has the price gone up, which tells people that this asset has more value, but now countries, now companies, now professional athletes are now sort of actively using this and companies are now offering it as a purchasing tool. So to me- And there's a shadow market for, you know, if you just kind of read the tea leaves of a lot of other companies that have supposedly put it on the books, but have not come out and said, hey, we've got it. Well, and, and, you know, high net worth individuals, like you, you name it, there are lots of people at the very least are talking about the space, like in Canada, where we are, like, I, I see ads on TV now that speak to uh, maybe not Bitcoin, but companies that buy or sell Bitcoin, you mm -hmm. know, that conversation was never there three years yeah. ago. Like, you know, it was, people were still laughing at me for talking about Bitcoin 18 months ago. <laughs> yeah, I would say that's absolutely true. I mean, Basically, before the 2020 crash, down to three thousand bucks. Well, people, yeah, and people, it was commonly mocked <laughs> by traditional investors. I, I think the sentiment is changing. Like you don't hear people laughing at people who own Bitcoin. I think they ask. People are starting to ask the question, why? Like, why? Why do you think this has value? Um, yeah, we moved back a couple of years ago. Is what is Bitcoin? Now nobody asks that question because it's obvious in some sense it's been talked about enough and now it's more like okay why should i own how should i own what's the right well i think with allocation? anything like any wealth it's 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 uh, an agreed upon value uh, for society like yeah anything can have value if enough people agree on it like a uh, an nft i don't personally think an nft of a jpeg that is just like pixels is worth you know two million dollars but some people do. Is that a bubble? Is it not like rookie hockey cards <laughs> have value? Those are just pictures on cardboard. Like, so, right. you know, if, if enough people, if enough people say something has value, it has value. Like it, it doesn't matter what the thing is. It, it matters if it has confidence to be exchanged as value in the market. Like that's, that's the main thing. <laughs> and that's what I think people in general lose about money has no value whatsoever. It's None. just like a mechanism. It's like a mechanism, right. Yeah. Um, to store, uh, an exchange rate for goods and services is what is really what it boils down to. Um, and, and if we're real honest, the only thing that gives money value is use that, that each side of the transaction does with whatever is on each side. And, and, but it's more so it's belief that that unit can act as money. And if we're really honest and we're really truthful the last couple of years, the belief in the in the reserve use has waned. It's waned at the institutional level. It's waned at the the nation state level. It's waned at the individual level. And I think that's why you're seeing that belief systems. People starting to ask questions around that. People, yeah, like ten years ago, two thousand eight, no one was saying like, "Is the dollar backed by anything?" <laughs> like that was, you mm -hmm. know, that was or maybe twelve, thirteen years ago. No, no one was asking that question. No one. Um, People are asking that question now, like, why, why does this have value? You know, and you hear, oh, it's a government, you know, it's a petrodollar, you know, it's backed by a military. Okay, fair enough. But if, if enough people don't accept it as having value, or if, if you're increasing the rate of that currency, that it's 
not maintaining its purchasing power, like people are going to start asking questions like why. Yeah. And I mean, if the actions of those supposed things that back the currency don't match what people place value in, then their belief system on which things they place value in as currencies change. Um, yeah. That's in the geopolitical mess, kind of what we've, and then you throw inflation on top of it. One for me, like with this inflation backdrop, the fact like I'm of the mind that, you know, the market could have a major correction if the Fed doesn't step in and continue to print the balance sheet. I think that's inevitable. So mm -hmm. the one variable I would just to your listeners is the Fed. Like if the Fed stops, like there's a going to be a major correction. If they continue to print, there is probably not going to be, or it would be difficult, but you're going to lose your value in a different way uh, through your purchasing power. So, so having some allocation, five, 10% of cash is not the worst thing, like a six month burn, because, you know, if there is that massive you got you you have real use case that you can put your finger on for sure but you know on the alternative if the other scenario which is i would say just as likely <laughs> uh of a high i don't want to say hyperinflation but a high high inflation environment was quite painful yeah your allocation to hard assets needs to be pretty high like <laughs> i would put you know stocks generally go up quite well during high inflations but eventually they have a massive correction <laughs> Because yeah, it's when it's JP Morgan has some research on that. And it's when interest rates get between four and 5% that it starts to negatively because there's an incentive there. I can take little to no risk in these, you know, government backed instruments yeah. and I can get 5% a year, or I can take a lot of zigzag risk up, down, up, down in stocks and maybe squeeze out 12. And that's the thing. Like if, if, that kind of continues. Like if you look at the Venezuelan stock market or um, it was ripping for years, but you know, was that getting you further ahead? No. And then eventually there's this large crash. And usually that's when the money, like right, right now money is arguably negative. Like people are paying you to borrow money. Like I can borrow money in Canada. I can borrow money at two and a half percent. And even if you're accepting the skewed CPI number as 5%, like you're still, you're still netting two and a half percent just by borrowing money. So, so that's a great real time point and an anecdotal evidence that matches what you talked about in Rome, what you talked about in Weimar, what you saw here the last couple of years in Venezuela is that, you know, exit velocity mm -hmm. that's just so high. And then when it's, it's a little bit concerning when you look at the S&P, because you're well above that 45 degree line and you're starting to see signs of exit velocity. When I, you know, started in 2020, like when the employment rate was going up at the same rate as the stock market, <laughs> that to me, like, because even sort of in 2020, I was of the mind that, you know, the market probably was going to have a very large correction. Like this was pre-COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, I like switched everything to cash. Same. Same. And Not, I didn't you, go all cash, but same. Well, you could just, I think maybe I, no, I, I think I, I think I sold every single stock I had, but you could see, you could see to me like that there was something unsustainable. So then this market has a big collapse and then the, the fed jumps in and they haven't stopped jumping in. So that's the variable, right? Like, you know, are, are the fed going to continue to backstop? My argument is if they backstopped it due to COVID, like why would they stop now? Like what, what is the incentive for them to stop now versus 12 months ago, 18 months ago? And and so back on the top of what's the Fed going to do? One of the things that I try to talk to people about because we get these phone calls and you get emails and you, you personal conversation, you know, hey, what's up with inflation? What do I do? Is it going to be bad? Is it going to hurt my portfolio? Should I sell everything and run? Um, and you know, there's some mix of all those things are right. 
you never want to make an emotional decision, but what I've started to tell people and kind of curious what you think is don't wait for the fed or some other government institution or entity to tell you there is inflation. Just look, look at your monthly burn. What do you spend? How's it allocated? Where's that money going? And then what does this month look like versus last month? What does this month look like the same month a year ago? And if, if you go to the gas pump and it's 340 this week and last week it was 280. Yeah. I don't care what anybody says. That is the definition of inflation. The the Fed argue there's a case to be made the Fed is arguably the last person to acknowledge Correct. inflation. So they're disincentivized uh, to come out and say we're seeing 12 to 15 percent inflation. Well, and, and I don't think I don't think they'll even say that. Like they they went from saying there is no inflation to we're not expecting inflation to, okay, there's some inflation, but it's transitory. Like that was a big thing a few months ago. Now, now they're sort of changing the narrative to inflation is good. Well, yeah. And so I've got one for you. There is no subprime. There is no issue. Subprime is contained. It's not a problem. Oh, wait, it's a global financial crisis. We've got to go, you know, stabilize all the banks. Yeah. Yes, we've yes we've sustained some losses, but the market is strong. <laughs> yeah. Subprime, you know, and it's just like uh, there's a quote in Sovereign Individual, I think, that says that um, saying. I mean, I I have clipped the headlines from the FT because I was like, this doesn't make any sense. Oh, like October two thousand six, going to you know the depths of September two thousand eight. So I I find sort of going back to history and finding those headlines like fascinating because they always tell the same story like no 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 crash happens okay yes there was a crash <laughs> yeah like, we tried our best yeah nothing um, we could have done who, who yeah. could have foreseen this coming right and if you're you know on twitter there's a lot of people that are like screaming as loud as they can like <laughs> pressing pitch is like yelling at people saying like this is yeah this is an issue like you need to protect yourself so that's an interesting thing. I get a lot of um, flack for being on Twitter and all the fake news that's on Twitter and all the, you know, downsides of Twitter. Seems to me, even though it's censored in a lot of cases, personally, it's been one of the best resources out there. And ninety-eight percent of the people that I follow um, and get legitimate good information from don't have initials and credentials after their name. Do you have an opinion on that? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm like Elon Musk's chief rocket engineer uh, for his like SpaceX program, I think has a degree from like Idaho <laughs> or something. It's like, and it's, I don't even know if it's in like rockets. So there are a lot of smart people that don't have credentials. I, I don't like put any credentials on my Twitter. I just want my work to be, I want the work to like speak for itself. So and there are a lot of smart people. You don't need to go to school to have someone to tell you they're smart. And I find like, if you, if you were in school right now studying Bitcoin, um, I would admire, like, what would they tell you? I don't even know if they would even tell you that this is something that is real. <laughs> They'd probably tell you it's the blockchain. Yeah. And, and I, I used to think that like, that was me in 2017. I was like, oh, the blockchain has value. It's the blockchain. And then you start studying about it. You read some books and you're like, oh, it's not the blockchain. Like Bitcoin doesn't even have a very good blockchain. It's right. It's the worst database you could use. It's not even, it's not even, that's not why it has value. Like that's exactly. You know, and for people saying like, oh, the banks, Bitcoin has no value because the banks will just create their own blockchain. It's like, well, yeah, central or, banks will. <laughs> like, or, or how about the studies of Bitcoin consumes way too much energy, but nobody's paying, you know, Senator Warren is out, you know, yapping on that. Um, 
with total disregard for the amount of energy that the banking, the, the actual banking system uses. Or even it's how like much, seven times more than Bitcoin network. Or even how much energy is, is produced, but not used, like not consumed. Because that number Correct. is way higher than the amount of energy that Bitcoin's used. And that's why oil and gas guys are getting in. Because they have all this excess waste energy and they're like, wait a second, you can tell me I can funnel that into something that spins a Bitcoin mining rig and I can get, you know, create a financial asset out of my waste. And that's kind of what's cool about Bitcoin is it sort of monetizes energy consumption or, or energy, mm -hmm. energy generation. And, th and that I think is really interesting in that anybody who produces excess energy, it's like, I can make money off this. Currently, right. currently the system... The energy system right now is like a, a parking lot at the mall <laughs> mm -hmm. where um, I would say 30, 40% of the spots are not used, but they're there for Christmas <laughs> Yeah, and they're used at Christmas and you know, the rest of the year, they're just not there. So, you know, what are they, what is, what are those parking spots do the rest of the year? Like for where, where I'm around, like they just sit there. They're like these. Or, I mean, just honestly, like 80% of malls in general. Well, yeah, I mean, like I mean, the building, the structure, not many people use those to capacity. Well, and can you use that? Can you use that for something better? Mm -hmm. um, and that's, you know, you're seeing oil and gas people like once you sort of really study mining, you start to realize where is there inefficient or where there's energy that's being generated or that could be generated that is not being used. <laughs> and, right. you know, can I look I, if I can make money off this, this incentivizes me to do this and to, to the energy use debate, like miners don't want to be using dirty electricity. Like for them, if they have a sustainable source of electricity, that's much better for them if they're in the business for more than a couple of years. Like they, if they have a sustainable thing and they pay for the infrastructure, eventually their asset is going to like be netting energy free and clear. Like if you built a hydro dam or, or some, if you access geothermal, eventually there's going to be a point where your infrastructure has been paid off by the Bitcoin mining and you're just making essentially free and clear money. <laughs> yeah. And if, if math rules the world and people are by and large profit oriented, those guys, they don't do anything without math and they don't do it unless they know that they can make a profit. So why not pay attention to what they're doing rather than, you know, mock them and say that they're, they're creating, you know, a bad ESG, you know, non-friendly yeah. environment. And those people are in the business of allocating their capital efficiently, right? Like mm -hmm. they don't, they don't allocate their capital. If they're not going to get a return. Um, it, it, that's a great point for listeners that, you know, what do you take away um, from the inflation? One, you've got substitution. You, you're going to have to look at the things you purpose, purchase, find better substitutes that, you know, achieve what you want to achieve, but your personal capital allocation matters. It, it's always mattered, but in an inflationary environment, you need to drill down on it and make sure the the allocation counts. Well, and and I find a lot of like investors have trouble getting into these, like say for instance, Bitcoin because there's no yield. Like you hear a lot from Warren Buffett, like it doesn't give you a dividend, and he's like a very big dividend guy. And and I've studied Warren Buffett, and I I come through macroeconomics as like a value investor. <laughs> Um, that's sort of where I'd like to be. But if you look around in the environment, there is no such thing as a value investment that pays you a dividend. Mm -hmm. anymore. Like, you know, and argue maybe some REITs are undervalued that can still pay you. But if the inflation is still increasing and they put controls on the rent, like you're, you're in trouble. So there's this period where it's almost like, like a hunkered down period where you just sort of are trying to avoid the inflation by 
putting your money into assets that don't lose purchasing power, <laughs> regardless so, of whether they give a dividend or not. So if you ask me the most common theme between Bitcoin or Bitcoiners that I've interviewed, talked to, almost every one of them say exactly what you just said. At heart, I'm a value investor. Yeah. I mean, and it sounds weird um, to say that when you're sort of advocating for magic internet money that doesn't mm -hmm. give you but um, most people, at least in Bitcoin that I've, I know are value investors and they feel that like on a Bitcoin standard, you can return as a value investor. Like it's much easier to do that in the future if everyone's sort of using Bitcoin or using a hard money because it's hard to be a value investor when their money supply is being printed. Like all of that money goes to uh, like FANG stocks. <laughs> well, you could say, easily say you become a valuation investor at that point because you're just like not even paying attention but even the valuation like it, it's almost like uh the money goes like it's the cantillion effect right like the yep. money goes to certain things first and that kind of creates these snowball effects so the money printing mm -hmm. goes to these big companies which creates these big growth rates and it's you're almost selling a story versus like a numbers game like does anyone even know <laughs> like the, the rate of growth doesn't really match up with the just the amount of new investment that's going into these companies. Yeah, we could do a whole nother two-hour podcast on Cantillion effect, and it's basically what you saw with the stimulus and bailout from 2020. It's like, where's the problem? Let's take the bazooka, aim it at that first, and mm -hmm. then hope and pray that money trickles down from there, and it just doesn't generally happen. No, it's probably not the most efficient way to allocate capital but right it's ironic because that's sort of the mandate of the central bank but you know stable stable stabilized prices prices but when you look at the prices you know they stabilize prices and unemployment are there sort of two mandates but uh to achieve one you're not able to achieve the other right now like yeah it's difficult to do that so they sort of again pick the lesser of the two evils and does that make things better you know for some people it does but i would say the majority of people are getting left further behind yeah. So, um, you know, we can go on for days. Don't want to, uh, you know, kind of give everybody their time back, but a great conversation. I've enjoyed it here. Um, maybe a couple of key headliners you would kind of encourage people in terms of, you know, how to be aware of inflation, what to do about if you feel inflation creeping into your life and, you know, where they can find you. And sure. Yeah. So we like, uh, we have a blog called wealthplaybook.ca. I'm on Twitter at Drew. Mac Martin, I think it is. I actually don't even know. <laughs> yeah, don't I, even think know right. handle, but, um, I think that's it. My name. <laughs> I think that's right. Uh, so I, I mean, you're welcome to follow me. I talk about inflation a lot. Um, and sort of the, the true gauge or what I say is inflation. I would just say to people, you need to think independently of what the advice that you're getting from central authorities in terms of inflation. Uh, generally, historically, those are the last people that will let you know of something <laughs> that was sort of referenced in the sovereign individual. Like, if, you, if you're going to stay up to date on current affairs, generally, you have to study them yourselves and make sort of those informed decisions yourself. There are sort of myriad of people that are sharing this information on Twitter. You're, you're more than welcome to check us. We talk about inflation pretty heavily. Like, I would say 50% of my like research is all like based on inflation and like historical precedents. Uh, I'm actually starting to compare similarities between Weimar and today in sort of a, a new post. But I, I would just say, like, track your expenses and measure your wealth minus what is being printed every year. <laughs> that, that's your best thing. I, I find, like, 
if you think about weight loss, the, the biggest thing they say is like measure what you're consuming. I think it's the same thing with wealth. Like if you start tracking your wealth, that's when your wealth starts growing or you start realizing where you're not growing your wealth, you know? So the very first thing is just track your expenses, track your wealth growth and track it in relation to the money supply. So if the money supply has increased 20% year over year, is your wealth up 20%? If it's not, you know, find assets that have been doing that. <laughs> I, I love that. Um, that's the top two things working with clients is show me your expenses. Nobody wants to do it. Show me your balance sheet. You give me those two things within 25 minutes, 10 minutes, I can figure out, you know, where your true pain points are, mm -hmm. solutions to resolve them and then ways forward to make that because your net worth grows and that's the, that's the component you really want to fo focus on. Who cares what your investment account does? I mean, you, you care, but your net worth is driven by the spread between your assets and your liabilities between the things that are working for you and the things that are working against you. So if you're real clear on your expenses, what they are, what they need to be for the things you want to achieve in life, and then how that flows through to the balance sheet, it's just hard to get behind. Yeah, absolutely. Like that's, I would say that's sort of the essential first step for, for anybody, even people like if you, if you summarize someone's expenses and say, you're spending this much on this, this much on this every month, I, I imagine most people would be shocked. <laughs> It's like mm -hmm. I eat out that much. I spend that much on like food that I don't make. So that that's kind of the key first step. And then from there, you can kind of start start learning a bit more about the assets that are sort of protecting. But generally, generally, most hard assets will protect against this environment. But certainly, yeah, the first thing is, is track your track your expenses, track your wealth, and uh, from there you can kind of grow. I, I also I think people need to, there are certain people that have the mentality that like money or having wealth is like a really bad thing. Um, depending on sort of the environments that they grew up in or like were taught through family or friends to sort of shun people that were affluent or, or had high wealth. I think it's really just the definition of wealth. Like what is, what does wealth mean to you? To me, like wealth is freedom. And the more wealth you have, the more time you can spend to do whatever you want. Like, you know, for me, it's family, like family's pretty important. I have two young kids. So, you know, what are you going to do with that wealth? Are you going to help people? Are you going to make the world sort of a better place? Or are you just going to sort of spend it on sort of frivolous things? So if you have this sort of big why of why you want to grow your wealth or maintain your wealth, that that's important too. That's sort of your fire to continue sort of updating your expenses, continue tracking your expenses to make sure that you're sort of continuing on the path. And that's the keys of what we do is, is figuring out what those top few things are you want to achieve, make sure your monthly burn feeds into that doesn't detract from it make sure balance sheet feeds into that doesn't detract from it and then we've got some assessments we've created um this thing called wealth languages and it basically nails down your personality and then you know kind of matches that with how you spend see and use money um and it's really a game changer because it it helps people not feel bad because you're not going to change your base personality not feel bad about that and then put in guardrails within their financial life to make sure that they stay kind of down the middle, keep it down the center to achieve the things they really want to want to achieve. So when you take all that stress around finances out, it really allows you that freedom that you speak about with freedom of time, freedom to do with the family and the things you really want to achieve.
Yeah, and some people, it's you know, it's other things, traveling, it's this. But you know, everyone has those things that they would like to do, right? Mm-hmm. And not to get sort of too woo-woo for your listeners, but having <laughs> having future goals, your brain tends to acknowledge those and tends to work around achieving those goals. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's um, you lose. I lose a lot of people on on that point if I sort of explain it in detail. But but having clear clear goals, like I've studied that for people the last hundred years, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, having clear defined goals that you want to achieve, like, and looking at those goals, reinforcing those goals every, every single day, three times, four times a day, you'd be amazed at how much, <laughs> how much closer you can get to those goals after sort of, you know, one year, two years. Yeah. And that's the crux of Bitcoin proof of work. Um, you know, that it's the work that generates the productivity, which generates the wealth. And, just to kind of sum it all up, we're seeing a lack of work. Hey, let's just kind of pitch it over the fence. Let somebody else do it. We'll get paid. Everybody's on the take in that scale. And then that creates this inflation, which creates this, you know, rough environment. Um, so I think that hundred percent agree with you. That's a great point. Once people get back to those values and goals and, and that work effort, effort that goes behind those um that wealth picture really changes yeah i I 100 agree with what you said like that's that's a great sort of summary like because the work is the production and and right now people are just sort of focusing on making more dollars to sort of Mm -hmm. keep their head above water and the you know if you care if you're producing something of value like most people are just like well i just want to make sure i can protect it with the just looking at that income what's my income yeah. And there's a big difference between like making more dollars and making something that's like productive for society. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, Drew, um, thanks a lot for joining today. I uh, yes, really enjoyed fun. it. Um, pleasure. love to have you, have you back on sometime, but it was a great chat.